You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Hey, let's hear it for our worship band. Are those guys so such a blessing? And, uh, and uh, I just wanted to uh, introduce David to you really quick. David, come over here, brother. Um, David, just so you guys know, some of you guys know David, some of you don't know David. He just recently moved over here from California. Uh, he was actually the worship leader for Calvary Chapel Kona Coast. Pastor John Miller and Krista are friends with David's family. And, uh, and, and, and um, you used to play for, for uh, Calvary Kona Coast, and then, of course, you uh, also helped us out, and then you were gone. Jesus merged the two churches together, and, and, and John was bragging about this guy all the time. He's like, he's got a gift from God. He's a great worship leader, and of course, Jarrett, we've all been blessed by Jarrett, Jarrett's worship as well, so yeah, we can put our hands together for that. It's, we are grateful for them. They lead us into the presence of God, and the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. So we're not just like singing a bunch of songs and clapping, right? I mean, this isn't high school musical, you know? Like this is, this is cosmic. This is huge. This is to the glory of God. And so um, I just wanted to publicly thank David. So blessings to you, bro. He's going to be one of our two worship leaders. And, uh, and, and of course, I'm very grateful for, for Pastor John was just like, this guy is just great. He's just fantastic. Just uh, bragging it up. And so um, I'm very thankful for that all. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. The Gospel of John chapter 12. We're going to be finishing up this today. And um, I also wanted to, uh, there's one more important announcement that I wanted to, to make. Um, if I could have my wife come up here really quick. She's going to hate me for this. But if I could have my wife come up here really quick. Um, many of you guys don't know that... Uh, you guys know I'm married, but you don't know who my wife is, and so I want to introduce to you my wife, Juliet Scott, and here she is, my beautiful lady. I don't know what she was thinking uh, six years ago when she said, I do. I have no idea, um, but I'm grateful for her, and today is her birthday, so I just... Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm not doing this to score brownie points. I'm actually, like, losing right now. Like this, I, I'm, I'm in trouble now, right? Okay, I'm... I, At home, you at home, I'm in trouble. Okay, well, um, so we're not going to sing happy birthday, but I know uh, that she would be blessed if we all had a word of prayer. And if you guys can just stay seated, but stretch out your hands towards her while we pray for her on her birthday today. Jesus, thank you for my wife, and thank you for um, her service to this church, taking care of, of, of our kids and even the, the kids of this church at Shorebrake Keiki and and supporting me to be able to share the gospel through this church and, um, and through, the mund- through the mundane tasks of everyday life, from changing diapers to um, taking kids to the doctors and going grocery shopping. God, you notice all those things. Those things do not go unnoticed. And so I just want to thank um, you for her. She enables me to do what we are called to do. It's to love you, Jesus, to worship you, to take care of our family, which is next, and then after our own family, our, our church family, shore break. So I pray that you would bless her for all that she does in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, babe. All right. 
So you should hopefully be in, in John chapter 12 by now. If you're taking notes, we've called our message this morning, Last Words. Last Words. And let's pray before we get into the scriptures. Jesus, we come before you. We need to hear from you. Spirit of God, we need you to move in our midst and we ask that you would illuminate our dark hearts so that we would see you, so they would know you, so that we would be changed by you. So even as we are here, I pray that this just not be another Sunday going to church. I pray that you would change people's lives. I pray that you would shift people's destinies, that you would do a work only that you could do. God, Holy Spirit, would you come in and wreck us from the inside out? And even as our Bibles are open, I pray that our hearts would be opened. Lift the veil above our eyes, Jesus, so that we would see you clear this Sunday for myself personally and for all of us than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alexander Height's final text message was cut off mid-sentence. And texting while driving, we know, is, is dangerous. We shouldn't be doing that. We all know the dangers of texting behind the wheel because Alexander, the 20-year-old student, died in a horrible car accident this April, on April 3rd, after driving into oncoming traffic, swerved, rolling his car off the road. Alexander's heartbroken parents released the picture of the unfinished text message on his iPhone and hope that other drivers will be warned of the dangers. The photo shows the university student replying to his friend, typing, sounds good, my man, see you soon, I'll, before he crashed. Witnesses told police that Alexander appeared to have his head down when he began drifting into oncoming traffic in the outskirts of Greeley, Colorado. Police said an oncoming motorist slowed down and moved over just before the young driver lifted up his head, jerked the steering wheel, and flew off the road. In a statement released through police, Alexander's mother, Sharon, said she does not want anyone else to lose a loved one to texting while driving. She said, in a split second, you could ruin your future, injure or kill others, and tear a hole in the heart of everyone who loves you. And you look at that, knowing that his dead body was a... He's dead, he is gone, but he was an attempt to send that last text message just goes to show how tragic last words of our own life for the people, lives we love so dearly, so close to us can really mean. And of course, the side note is don't text while driving, right? Do not text while driving. Did you know that texting while driving, uh, if you do that, you um, you are driving worse than someone who's intoxicated. You are, so don't do that. That's just a side note, but the big idea is we all hang on to last words. Can you imagine what the parents are thinking when they look at that, I'll see you soon. Now carry that emotion with you. Carry those feelings, that heartbrokenness, now to the end of chapter 12, where we will be in the final chapter of Jesus' public ministry. These are Jesus's Last 
words to thousands of people. Because starting in chapter 13 to the rest of the book, we know that as we study through the Gospel of John, that we are going to be looking at Jesus' private ministry. Jesus' time with him and his 12 disciples, which would eventually become 11, as we know. So chapters 1 through 12, Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 to the end of the book, Jesus' private ministry. Of course, we know he will eventually go public when he will be killed on a cross. And as we look at these last words, Jesus is speaking, summarizing his ministry, summarizing why he existed, the purpose he came. I want you guys to see the brevity, the weight, the heartbrokenness behind his last message to thousands upon thousands of people before he dies. Because Many of these people will never see Jesus again. Many of these people he is talking to will never hear his voice. And the next time they will see him, they will be on their knees, begging to have eternal life. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It shows how tragic this really is. Well, we pick it up in verse 36 of chapter 12, and it says this, the second half of verse 36, actually. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them. How many signs did Jesus have to do for them before they would believe? I mean, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear. He raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, John, I think it's chapter 20 or 21, John lets us know that all the miracles Jesus did, if we were to write them all down, books could not hold all the miracles that he did in his own ministry. And they've seen it. What more could they possibly want from Jesus? They still don't believe. And some people will say, well, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just have a glimpse of his glory, see who he is, then... Not true. People saw him. People saw him raise people... Jesus raised people from the dead. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Why? So that the word, verse 38, would be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blind, who's he? Speaking of the Lord. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. So really, there are two kinds of people according to the Bible. Now, today we label everyone, right? You have someone who's got swagger, someone who's vintage, someone who's old school, someone who's wealthy, someone who's poor, someone who's popular, someone who's not. We have labels for everyone and for everything, right? From ginger to to blonde, 
to everything else in between. But really, the Bible is like, no, no. According to God, he only sees two types of people. Unbelieving sinners and forgiven sinners by the grace of God. So if you could take all of mankind and put them in one of two groups. There are unbelieving sinners and let me say, I have to say this, forgiven sinners. Still sinners, but, but forgiven by the grace of God. So taking that now with you to the text, we look at these people, the unbelief of these people, and they were unrepentant, hard-hearted people because they did not want to give up their idols. Their hands were white-knuckled, holding on to the things that mattered to them most, and they did not want to give up what they centered their life around. They're like, no, we're not going to do it. Like, we've built our life upon this. And if we're going to let this go, that means we're letting go of our identity. That means we are letting go of everything that is important to us. And so we here have two quotes that John, through the inspiration, pens of the prophet Isaiah, verse 38 and verse 40. And what Isaiah said echoes all the way back to Moses and the Exodus. Uh, if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talked about this. He said this in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome for what was being brought to them at the end. But their minds were hardened for this day when they read the old covenant what old covenant paul is saying the old testament the old covenant when they read it the same veil remains unlifted because only through jesus christ it is taken away so they have this veil they're blinded they can't see they're hard-hearted through jesus It can only be taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. To this day. Today, April 14th, 2013. To this day, a veil lies over their hearts. Here's the good news, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is not bondage. There is not a veil. Where Jesus is, we have freedom. And that is why one of my favorite places to be throughout the entire week is to be with my church family on this Sunday in the presence and the spirit of the Lord. Because there's freedom here. We have forgiveness of sins. We're able to draw close to God, encourage one another, build one another up. But that's why, and here's what I'm trying to to see. Out of these two groups of people, that's why hard-hearted people with a veil, they just don't get it. They don't see it. They have a veil. In verse 39, we are told, Therefore, because of this, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, so he's repeating himself, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, this is a passage of scripture. Many want to copy, delete. Because it's like, what? He has hardened their 
hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. This goes directly with what 1 Peter 2.8 says, talking about Jesus and talking about being blinded. He said, he is, speaking of Jesus, he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word so that they may meet the fate that was planned for them. So according to 1 Peter 2.8, these, according to the prophet Isaiah, what John is talking about, God had their blindness planned from 700 years before this took place. In fact, I would even say that through the prophet Isaiah, from eternity past, God knew that they would be blind. He planned it. And just as they are responsible for their own blindness, because what that doesn't mean is like, all right, well, I'm blinded. I'm now not responsible for my own blindness. No. We are responsible for our own blindness. It's because of our sin, we are blinded. Because we chose sin over God. And that's why hard, blind people just don't get it. They have a veil. They are not okay with a crucified Messiah. They are not okay with a humble God. They're not okay with a righteous Jesus. They're not okay with their Savior being crucified. They don't want that. They're hoping, oh, well, we want Jesus to come here. He's talking story with us. And as he's talking story, everything he says is about how he isn't going to overthrow the political power of Rome. That upset them. They didn't want a crucified Messiah. And honestly, today it's no different. People do not want a crucified Messiah. Here's what's important to understand. People do not go to church, not because they don't like you necessarily, or even the church. It's because they have a veil, they're blinded. They don't want to go. That's why many people don't want to read the Bible. That's why many people don't want to go to community groups. That's why I've even had in counseling appointments, a couple on the other side of my desk, and the, the wife meets Jesus, and she's saved, and the husband wants nothing to do with it. And he came to the appointment wanting to know what did we do to his wife? And in that meeting, I will never forget it. It's happened a few times, but he is filing for divorce because the light of Jesus that is shining through her shines upon his dark heart and is convicting him of his sin. And, she's, and he's like, I don't want it. I'm done with this marriage. So he filed for divorce. Why? Because people do not want to see, people do not want to hear, people do not want to experience the glory of Jesus. That's what we see here happening in this text. And I know for some of you, like, this sounds very similar to last weekend's message. Of course. Of course it is. This glory that we will soon talk about is, is permeating throughout the entire Gospel of John, but especially here in, verse, or in chapter 12. The veil did not allow people to see the glory of Jesus. And since they didn't see Jesus, because they couldn't see Jesus, this is important, they were left hopeless. They were left condemned. They were left empty. They were left unforgiven. Because they were blinded. These are adjectives that Jesus used. Because they were blinded, hard-hearted, stubborn, stiff-necked, brute of vipers people. Jesus was so, so good with his words, wasn't he? 
That's what he said. And that, that's what John called them. John the baptizer. And this just goes to show that God is sovereign over all salvation and God is sovereign over all damnation. According to these verses, that's what we see. All because they did not want the glory of Jesus. Now, we're throwing this word glory of Jesus in here. How do we know this glory of Jesus is specifically what we're talking about? Well, look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, okay, so many people are saying we believe in Jesus. Even many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of what? The synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is this a saving faith? It says they believed. We've seen this consistency consistency throughout the gospel of John, I don't know that they are saved. I don't know. I've, I've, I've been studying. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. I've been looking into different commentaries in the original languages. I don't think they are saved. We'll unpack that more in a little bit. At the end of the day, we do not know. But here's what we do know. That the root of their unbelief and the root of all unbelief of people is they would rather have the glory of man than the glory of God. When it comes down to it, that is what we see. Now, we've been talking about this word glorious, right? We've been throwing around glory, glory, glory. All right, well, what is, what is glory? What is this glory of God that we are, are talking about? I mean, when, when we say glory, we're talking about weight. We're talking about power, We're talking about strength. So when we say that God is glorious, what we're saying is God is awesome. God is magnificent. God is majestic. God is just. God is whole. God is pure. He is radiant and light. He is supreme, precious, worthy. God is real. He's not some like cosmic floating spiritual thing. God, God is real. He's sitting on a throne. He is real. God is glorious. And within all of us is a thirst for glory. There is not one person who's sitting in this room, even the person who's like, I'm not hearing this. I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. You thirst for glory. Not one person who's sitting, who, sitting in this room for that, who exists in all of creation, does not thirst for glory in one way or another. Proof. When you are sitting out down at a restaurant or when you were driving down Ali'i and there is just, the fog's kind of been cleared a little bit and it's a clear evening and the sun is setting. Even the person, the atheist who professes that there is no God will stop and gaze at the glory of a sunset, right? We do because we like to behold glory. It's, it's beautiful. It's glorious, Or how about our team? When our team is winning and we jump up from our couch and we scream and we praise when no one's around, we're like, yes, our team. When they take the epic win, we are celebrating in glory. It's like, go Lakers, right? I mean, whatever your team is, whoever they are, we we celebrate poor Kobe Bryant. Actually, I have no compassion. Okay, that's, Kobe Bryant's got some, we'll, we'll, we're getting way sidetracked, but 
<laughs> he does. But think about this. That's why people come to visit where we live. Or if you're visiting here, that's why you probably came here to absorb, watch, view the glory of lava flowing out of this island or the beautiful seas that are 80 degrees with fish swimming in them. And that's why people spend money to fly, to visit majestic mountains because we want to behold glory. All of us. We all, wired within us, have a thirst, have a hunger for glory. In one way or another, no matter how big or how small. In fact, that's why we even want, we enjoy wonderful food, right? That's why we'll, people will spend money to sit down and enjoy a nice plate of food. And those things aren't bad, but check this out. All those things that we mentioned in anything good in creation is just a sample, is just an appetizer of God's glory. Those things are reflective of God who is sitting on the throne. So when you see those things, they are all pointing to God. Romans 1 would say, you are without excuse. You are without excuse. Because wired within us is the thirst for glory. So what captured the attention and the heart of the people that John is talking about here? All of these people. What captured their attention? What did they glorify? What did they behold? What was more important to them than anyone? We are told in verse 42, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. So what they held precious to them, what was important to them, was the glory of religion. The glory of going to synagogue and being approved by man. That is what they beheld and glorified. They centered their life around what they thought was God, but it really was anything but God. It's where they put their identity in verse 43, I want you guys to see this, what's happening here. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory. That scares me. More than the glory that comes from God. So let me ask you, whose glory do you live for? Whose glory are you thirsty for more than God's glory? What glory captivates your attention more than God? And I've had to sit down and ask myself that question. I'm like, well, let me start a list. And it has just been jaw-dropping. All the things that we, we behold in glory that are nothing compared to God, they all point to God's glory, but yet we treasure those things more. Whose glory are you living for? I want us to, together, to all take a litmus test to see for all of us whose glory we are living through. Now, here's where I got this test from. I got it from the scriptures. I didn't just make it up. I actually got it from the people John is talking about here. So the Pharisees, specifically. So we're going to take this list partially from the Pharisees, partially from my own life experience as well, because I often am like a Pharisee. Here's the first thing we see here. 
like the Pharisees John is talking about here, a litmus test to see whose glory we are living for. You can write these down too. Question one, would you rather serve only for the accolades of people or serve Jesus who rewards those who serve him out of a pure heart? Would you rather serve, work for the accolades of people, or would you rather serve Jesus just simply out of a pure heart, whether someone praises you or not? This is hard, right? Because we all like having attention. We all like being in the center. And so what is happening here and what God has exposed even with my own heart is do I, even when it comes down to preaching the word of God, I can say things that I know you guys will like. I know that many people will say, ooh, that's good, but that might not even be necessarily according to the scriptures. And there's that temptation, even within my own heart, to preach for man's glory and not to preach for God's glory. Or even when we work in our workplace. When I talk about serve, I could be talking about the church. I can be talking about, for those of you who come in here throughout the week and wash the carpets, those of you who are here at church, five, six, seven in the morning, thank you guys for those of you who did that, cleaning up. When we do that, Many of us often, I'm not saying for those of you who serve, but what we can attempt to do within our own hearts is somehow to do it for the attention of people. Even in our work, we'll go out of our way to do something good to be seen by man. Instead of just doing it in secret, keeping it in the closet and saying, well, God sees me. God is my ultimate boss. I answer to him. He provides my payroll. Would you rather serve for the accolades of people for the attention or only serve Jesus, who rewards those out of a pure heart. Second thing. Do you spend more time on outward behavior or inward obedience? (laughs) That one, for me, is like, oh, knife in the heart, right? Like, oh my gosh. To know whose glory you are living for, do you spend more time on the outside or more time on the inside? Outward behavior or inner obedience. Many of us try to play this game called Christianity even when we go to community groups or we are around other people. We're like, I gotta wear the t-shirt. I gotta do the thing. I gotta do this. I gotta pull it together and have this outward behavior right. But what we often do is become like the Pharisees where Jesus said, they polish the outside of the cups, but the inside of the cup is filthy. They have like mold and scum and gross things growing. And they say, well, hey, at least the outside of the cup is clean, right? Only people can see the outside. That's what we do, right, in our house. So, oh, gosh, friends are coming over. I know like this last week we had some people coming over. So like throw stuff under our bed. Like how much can we possibly shove under our bed to hide? So the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is dirty. And what can happen is we can get religious and try to shape and modify the way we act by outward behavior, but it isn't inward transformation. It isn't God doing that work from the inside out, but we try to do it from the outside in. But God doesn't want your behavior. God wants your heart. God doesn't want your modifications. He wants your transformation. And that happens through what we're doing right now. The reading of God's word. That's what Romans 12 tells us. All right, here's the next thing. Number three. Would you rather give in secret 
so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Or give wanting to know what the return investment is. And yes, I'm talking about church even. So when it comes to church, when it comes to giving to God, would you rather, all right, I don't know what's going to happen with this, but maybe I will have a say in things. Maybe things would go my way. Maybe I could at least know what the return investment would be. Maybe if I gave a little more, I know I could fall in this tax bracket. I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad, but when you do it for, all right, well, what am I going to get? What can I possibly get out of this? How can I benefit? What is the benefit in me tithing and supporting the work of the ministry? And what we do is we can often gauge our giving off of that. And, and listen, we are a fast-growing church. I mean, our, by, by our numeric size, the giving is playing catch-up. I mean, we are, by the grace of God, we are paying our bills, but we are barely paying our, our, our bills. We are. And what I would say is this, though. When you give, when I give, when we give to support this ministry, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When the Bible says when you give, you should give cheerfully. You should give out of a pure heart. It should be a joy. And some people say, well, is it 10%? I mean, tithe means 10th. Jesus redefined it, and he said, whatever you can give out of a joyful heart. So I would say 10 is a good floor to start at. It is a good blueprint to begin to work with. But if you can give only 3% out of joy, then don't give 10%. We don't want your 10% or your 7% because God doesn't want that 7%. So give 3% out of joy. And you know what the Pharisees used to do? These people John is talking about, they would actually walk up, they would, um, they would go up next to the synagogue, and they would have their money, I'm not talking about like change, credit, they'd have money bags. They'd be like, what up, yo? Here we go. Like, I'm going to go tithe. Boom. Come on, yo. And everyone would be like, all right, that's awesome. Can we get a brick? Here's a brick. We can put your name on here. We can say the biggest supporters, we'll put you on the top of the chart. There we go. A plus for you. Like when you even walk up to Disneyland, they have, um, when, when they were redoing Disneyland a few years back when they were adding California Adventure, now they're changing it to something else. But you would walk up, and even on the tiles of the ground, people would spend so much money to have their name and their family like plaque there, like the Duggars, blah, 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 from this day to this day. Or, you know, and they would, they would do that. And the more you spent, the, the closer to the center of the park you would be. And so that's often even how some churches roll. Um, there, there is a church in Southern California that I uh, had some friends who went to, and they erected a statue of the biggest giver. Really? Like, you're going to make a bronze statue of the person who gave the most. I'm not even kidding. I had to pray for self-control, because a lot of things were going through my mind. I was like, ay, ay, ay. So, this isn't like, all right, we're going to have a pie chart now, and we're going to have a project. I mean, we will eventually, actually, in the future. We're going to actually open up some of the books to you guys, let you guys kind of see what, what God is, is doing. But it's not like we're going to, all right, we've got a thermometer. How many of you are going to pledge? Come on, auction right now. Well, who do you got for $100, $100, $100 a month? You know, we're not going to do that. We trust God will provide for the finances. But what I'm saying is if we were to open up where you spend your money, if you go to a coffee shop a lot, we know that you glorify coffee in one way or another. That's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong. If, if, if you, if you uh, really like fashion 
and, and you care about clothes, and that's like your thing, and we were to open up your bank statement, we could see that a lot of your spending would go to what you glorify. And so I would say is, for our own lives, we can tell by what we glorify by where our money is. Because where your treasure lies, Jesus said, your heart will be also. You can't separate your wallet from your heart. They're connected. So that's not, that's not like a guilt thing at all. It's just a conviction thing that God has been even working on me. All right, here's the fourth thing, to know whose glory you were living for. Would you rather show off how intellectual, how strong, and how tough you are, or stay meek like Jesus, even if you are strong? Now, what I'm saying here is this. The Pharisees would make it clear their knowledge of the scriptures to everyone. And you know what? They had more knowledge than I do and you do. You know, you got a verse memorized this week. Guess what? The Pharisees had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Have you ever read Leviticus? Like, honestly, I got stuck at, like, Leviticus 25 when it's talking about, when it started talking about bodily discharge. I'm like, okay, all right. That's awkward. God, wow. You know, like, seriously. They would show off how much intellectual knowledge they have. They would use their position of authority, lording over people like the Gentiles did. And, and they would not be like the Jesus. When we think about Jesus and we're talking about meek, we're not talking about staying quiet. Oh, well, I, I don't have much power. So think about this with meekness. Jesus was the most intellectual, smartest person on the face of the earth. Jesus is the most powerful man on the earth. Jesus is the most loving man on the face of the earth. He's stronger than anyone. By him, Colossians 1 tells us, all things are held together by Jesus. This universe, he's holding it together. So, Jesus, any, anyone's having a conversation, right? It's like, even if he had a conversation, like with Lance Armstrong, yeah, well, I walked on the moon. Jesus like, I made the moon. I'm gonna, I got you, I, like, I got you beat. Uh, Neil Armstrong, sorry, Lance Armstrong. <laughs> He's stronger than Lance Armstrong, too, even with steroids. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Okay, so many of you, and I, I love the diversity we have in, in the body of Christ. Many of you guys have strong, outgoing personalities, and others of you are just quiet and like you don't say a word. That's okay. I'm not saying don't change who you are, but don't plow over people. Don't think you are more important than anyone. Don't think that your knowledge, that your strength, that your skills, that your power somehow supersedes and makes you a little bit higher in the food chain in the body of Christ. We are all level at the foot of the cross. And so Jesus, we know, could hold back and withhold his power and display his meekness because he was God, and we are called to be like Christ. In fact, we see that happening. Jesus, when there would be conversations with the, the religious people, Jesus would be talking with them, and, and, and they would be talking amongst themselves or even thinking in their head, and Jesus is like, oh, I can see in your heart. I know exactly what you're thinking right now. I know. I know. But he didn't use that to leverage it for selfish reasons and motives. So, you want to know whose glory you are living for, would you rather show off how intellectual, strong, or tough you are, or be meek like Jesus, even if you are strong? Last and finally, uh, 
do you put unrealistic, unfair expectations on others or do you give grace when people fall short? People put, the religious people put unfair expectations upon people, upon the Israelites. They were legalistic. They added to the law. They added two things, so much so that it got complicated. Where even if their animal got caught on Sabbath, they couldn't go in and rescue their animal. They had to wait till the next day. Today, um, if you're in Jerusalem, like you, like elevators are shut down on the Sabbath. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, I'm just going to go right. No, you're not. You're not. Because they, they, anything to do with working, from pushing a button to doing things, and what they did is they added these things. They added unfair, unrealistic expectations. And even for us, those of us who have kids who are parents, that is often what we do. We add unfair, unrealistic expectations upon our kids or upon the people that we love. Or even if it's not kids, it could even just be another relationship. You are codependent. You can't live without that person. So you've put unrealistic expectations, bringing them alongside your life so that they can become the functional savior for you and not Jesus. So that when you're going through a hard time, instead of calling out to God, you can call out to this person and they'll be there to help you. And that is what we see so often happening. And that is an area to tell whose glory we are living for. Because we're living for the glory of man if we are putting unrealistic, unfair expectations on them, thinking, how can you serve me? And we know, it's like, oh, wait, I didn't get invited to your birthday party? What? I thought we were friends. Like, I don't know. I just don't, and my feelings are hurt. And it's like, okay, well, you, you knew him for a day, right? Like, <laughs> you fall, you're, like, you're friends with him on Facebook, but you, like, ne- I mean... And we put unfair expectations, even on me. You could put unfair expectations of me. What if, if you, all of you guys demanded that I sat down and had dinner with every single one of you? How long would that take? You know, I, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to go to, we're, we're going to community groups. I'm going to be going to different, hanging out. But I can't sit down and have dinner with everyone. Neither can some of the other guys, right? I mean, this is unrealistic. I mean, it would take a couple years if we did it once, once a week. There's no way that that, that could happen. Do you put unrealistic, unfair expectations or do you give grace when people fail? It's like, hey, listen, I know you messed up. You know, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I know you failed me. I know you aren't perfect. I know you're a sinner just like me and I'm going to fail you too. So you know what? I'm going to give you grace just because I've tasted the grace of God. I have failed. So you are free to fail. And we don't put unrealistic expectations on them. See, at the end of the day, everything the Pharisees did was determined by what was in it for them. And we are never more like the Pharisees when our actions are determined by what is in it for us. What can I get out of it? How can I be blessed by this? The church is making this change again. I mean, they're growing so fast. How does this better for, for me? So whose glory are you living for? I hope that the Holy Spirit has illuminated some areas in your 
in your heart. So here's, here's, here's why I say all this. I hope that we as a church enjoy. I hope that we savor. I hope that we stand in awe of the glory of God because in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And when we choose the glory of man over the glory of God, we sin. You guys realize that when we choose the glory of man over the glory of God, we sin. And we are left only hungry for more glory because that glory doesn't satisfy. In fact, Romans 3.23 says this, for all, we know it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So falling short happens by sin and we fall short of the glory of God and we are left thirsty for more. And so when you and I sin, the sin we enjoy so much oftentimes cause us to fall short because choosing sin over God is choosing the lesser of pleasure. Choosing sin over God is choosing the lesser of pleasure because sin is saying to God that he is not enough to satisfy our needs. Sin is saying to God, all right, God, I know you satisfy my needs, but I'd rather satisfy my own needs with this thing that is reflective of your perfect glory. I am guiltier than anyone of that. And I want you guys to see this. Within this text, Jesus is fighting for your joy. He wants you to be stoked. He wants you to have joy. And he is fighting for your joy. And Jesus wants you to know that, hey, guys, anything else apart from me, it will fail you. It will not bring satisfaction. You will continuously be on search in an endeavor, looking for the thing that will satisfy. And until you come to me, your soul will remain restless. Ecclesiastes tells us that he has set eternity inside the heart of every man. What eternity are we talking about? The eternal glory of God and being in his presence. We were wired for that. And when we choose something else, we will fall short. And you guys, check this out. You will never regret one moment living your life for the glory of God. You will never regret one moment of your life when you live it for the glory of God. I've never, ever heard someone on their deathbed Say, you know, I just wish I lived for myself more. Man, I mean, I live so selfishly for the glory of God. I really wish I just lived more for myself. And my, one of my uh, main Bible college teachers, Don McClure, he's a godly man. He taught me how to teach God's word, and, and, um, and I look up to him a lot. His Bible college teacher, Alan Redpath, said this, Only one life twill soon pass." And only what's done for Christ will last. Just one life, it's going to pass. And only what is done for God's glory will last for all eternity. Going back to that verse we referenced early in our message, 2 Corinthians 3.16, it says this, But when the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, what? There is freedom. There is freedom. And what we do with Jesus' glory will shape our identity. What you and I do with Jesus' glory will shape our identity. And that's why in verse 44, 
we read Jesus, what does it say, verse 44? And Jesus cried out because Jesus is our only salvation. And here are Jesus' last words. In verse 44, he cried out, Whoever believes in me, believe not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. See, Jesus told them, This to them time and time again. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you hate me, you hate the Father. Because how you treat Jesus, what you do with Jesus, is directly how you treat God and what you do with God because Jesus is God and he was sent from God the Father. And this is what the Gospel of John is all about. I know this is simple. Many of us are like, yeah, I know this. I'm a Christian. This is fundamental. This isn't just the milk of the word. This is the meat of the word. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And in verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you repent, repent from your sins, the veil is removed and the light in your dark hearts is turned on. And these are his last public words. Just like that text message we talked about. Bring that emotion with you. I want you to see the weight, the brevity behind the passion of these last three verses from Jesus to everyone. In verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will not judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and when to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Whatever I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We know Jesus. We are saved by Jesus. We grow closer to Jesus. We have eternal life in Jesus when we hold fast to the words of Jesus. We see the words commandment used, We see the word speak here. So we're talking about the word of God. We're talking about God's word. We're talking about the words of Jesus. And the way today that we know Jesus is through his word. You guys, the way you know Jesus today, the way you can grow closer to Jesus today is not through some spiritual experience, getting goosebumps, hearing the voice of God. The voice of God is in the word of God. And it's not wrong to want to hear from God, to have a moment of a filling of the Holy Spirit of God that really does make you feel that joy and that presence. But we don't seek that. We seek Jesus. And as we seek Jesus, out of that comes that experience. You want to know Jesus. You want to grow in Jesus. You want to be changed by Jesus. Be in Jesus' word. Every single chapter of this entire book is the inspired, God-breathed word. And it will change you. It will transform you. The very thing that you need is this. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. It's all about Jesus and it's all about his word. In fact, the Bible says that 
God esteems his word above his very name. Above his own name. God is a pretty big title, I would say. We're probably all in agreement. God is a pretty big, yeah, his word he esteems higher than his own name. What does that say about the word of God? So we have no excuse. So when we do turn to the word of God, when we read and when we study the Bible, we are often reminded of how we have epically failed at obeying God's commandments, right? So when you guys do, I'm going to pick up the word, I'm going to read it. And when you read the Bible, do you ever just feel condemned? Do you ever see your failures? Do you ever see your sin? Do you ever see how you fall short? See, many of us feel condemned because we all see that we have failed and we have. But when God, the Holy Spirit, removes the veil over your eyes, softens your hard heart, shows Jesus to you in all the scriptures, though now you see all of your condemnation and all of your failure, now as you read the Bible, you see, yeah, but Jesus has been righteous righteous on my behalf. And now God supplies the Holy Spirit, so now I am able to live empowered and actually obey his commandments because he's now done that. That That is, now we're not under the oppression of condemnation, the ministry of condemnation of of the word, of the law. See, when God, the Holy Spirit, shows us Jesus in the scriptures, condemnation is removed, and we are given righteousness from God. And that's why Jesus says this in verse 50. Look down, verse 50. And we know that his command is eternal life. It brings life. His word brings us not just life, but eternal life. Going back to that thing, joy. God is fighting for your joy. He wants your joy. He wants you to not have temporary happiness, but eternal joy. And every failure, every sin, every win, every excess, everything, period, God will take that all and use it for his glory. That is the good news. He does that all for us. Because Jesus came to save this world Jesus came to save us. Whose glory are you living for? You reflect what you glorify. You reflect what you glorify. Glorify Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that we are not under the ministry of condemnation of the law, but that we have been forgiven, that we have been washed clean, that we have been made pure before you. And I pray, God, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.16, that when the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I pray, God, that you would begin to remove veils off of our blind eyes and calluses off of our hard hearts so that we would see you, so that we would repent, so that we would change, so that we would see you. And God, maybe for many, the last words that you spoke publicly to these people who probably didn't believe in you. I pray that for those of us in here who probably don't believe in you, who don't know you, would be changed by you. That as your word has gone out, God, that eternal destinies would be changed. Would you do that work in our midst right now, God? Spirit, would you move? 
And even as we are coming to a close in our worship through the word, I pray that as we move in worship through music, that we would lose our voices singing your glory because we reflect what we glorify. I pray that we would be a church that reflects the face of Christ. So God, would you have your way in us? As we move into this time of worship, the Spirit of God changes to be like you. Let us glorify you above any man, above any religion, above any good thing or sinful thing. Thank you, God, for your time in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. As you guys, um, as we are going to continue now in a few closing songs, we, we, we like to save a bulk of our songs for the end of the service. We believe that it is a beautiful thing to respond to the Word of God and what God has done in our life and worship through singing. So let's take this time to do that now. And if you do not know Jesus, there are going to be uh, pastors up front who will pray for you if you do not know Jesus, if you do not glorify Jesus as God. Um, I believe that Jesus has done a work in removing veil over people's hearts this morning. And if that's you, let us know. It's not a shame in that. It's a joyous thing, right? It is a joy to have the burden removed of condemnation because heaven and hell are in the balance. Our eternal destinies hang on what we do with Jesus to let Jesus have his way with you. So I'll stand now and worship our awesome God. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.